0: The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the available lines ahead of the college basketball tournament on the DraftKings Sportsbook app, so download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Be it superstition or just an apparition, you suddenly appear inside my heart. Does this strange romance stand the ghost of a chance?
1: Welcome to... From the Bleachers, I am your host, as always, Seamus Clancy, coming to you from the wonderful Bleeding Green Nation Radio Podcast Network. Now, I have a very special guest today, the author of Silverworks, Boy 21, The Reason You're Alive, and some other fantastic novels. And most notably for Eagles fans, the writer of Silver Linings Playbook, New York Times best-selling author, Matthew Quick. Matthew, this is a bucket list podcast, Get for me. You're not quite Brian Dawkins, but you're pretty high up there for me. Wow. I got my Hank basket, uh, autographed jersey card right here next to me on my desk. So I got some good mojo going on right now. And Matthew, thank you so much for coming on. And how are you? Staying safe? I'm well.
2: Yeah, I'm staying safe. Thanks for having me. I I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm down here in the Outer Banks. We've been... um... They just let people back on the island. So hopefully we'll keep staying safe. They had uh, cops at the bridges for a while. Nobody could get on. We were really safe for a while. Oh,
1: geez. Yeah, I've done two week-long vacations there in my life and probably the most relaxing place in the world. Probably a great spot to write.
2: It is. It's it's very relaxing in the off-season. And I'm tucked away on the sound, so we don't get too many tourists back here. So it's a great place to write. But it does get quite hectic during the summer.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure the towns I went to. I went with my parents when I was younger, but I think Duck may have been one of them. But I'm not sure. Otherwise. Oh, yeah. I might have, have won three times, I think, actually. But beautiful place. I've never been to over the age of 21. I'm sure I'd like it even even a little bit more then. But <laughs> maybe I'll make it down sometime soon. Maybe not. hope yeah. you're staying safe and know some, uh, we've got some tropical storm stuff kicking in.
2: Yeah, it's pretty, it's kind of, you know, the usual down here. We, we have a lot of weather.
1: How long have you been down there?
2: Uh, my wife and I have been living here for about, I think it's six six years and a few months.
1: And you're a native of where? You're you're a South Jersey guy, right?
2: Yeah, I was actually born in Pennsylvania and we lived in North Philly for a few years when I was just a, a toddler. And then we moved over the bridge to Oakland, New Jersey, and I went to Collingswood High School in South Jersey, and then I went to LaSalle in North Philly. And then I taught in Eastern Voorhees in South Jersey and Haddonfield, New Jersey. So I've been around the South Jersey, Philly area for a long time. And then I lived in Massachusetts for a while and came back to Philly and Mass. And my wife is from Massachusetts, so I've been kind of all over the
1: East Coast. All my college friends are from Massachusetts, so I've visited Boston a few times. Probably my favorite non-Philadelphia town, but I'm obviously biased there. I am a Philadelphia lifer. Went to high school in North Philly. I went to uh, St. Joe's Prep for college, but other than that, much of, very much a South Philly type of guy. Uh, As anyone who's listening to this is very aware. But for anyone who's listening to this, they are aware of you, even though you've written some other great works. I've read some of them over the last week. Uh, For people who are out there, The Reason You're Alive. I reread Silver Linings Playbook. I've read it in the past in preparation of this interview, but I read The Reason You're Alive by Matthew Quick. Definitely recommend it. Check it out. But again, you're on here. It's an Eagles podcast. You know what we're going to talk about. Your debut novel, Silver Linings Playbook, which... As I'm sure everyone is aware and I'm sure has seen a uh, 2012 picture, I believe, 2012 was starring uh, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, watch it before week one, every football season. So several nice. playbook. Yeah, I bought it. I kept renting it on, on demand on Comcast for like three or four bucks. And I would watch it maybe two or three times during the season. I'm just like, why don't I just buy the Blu-ray and keep it in my house and play it on my PlayStation or whatever. Bite the billet and got that. So I'm someone who frequently, and I'm not sure, I sent you an article of something I wrote uh, during our other correspondence about trying to get you to come on the podcast, which again, I'm grateful that you did. But a lot of people listening to this podcast are aware I talk about my mental health frequently in my writing and my podcasting. You know, I've talked about it as it relates to Brian Dawkins, so we can get to that a little bit later. But uh, at the end of the day, I relate to Silver Linings Playbook because- Again, I have bipolar disorder. I'm an Eagle season ticket holder. I can see myself a lot in Pat Peoples' family struggles, relationship problems, the way he kind of feels about himself in terms of his physical health in the novel. I'm someone who can put myself in his shoes and Symbolizing's playbook is obviously a work of fiction, but to what degree do you say, or do you see yourself in Pat Peoples? Again, it's a work of fiction. But at the same time, it feels to me like this r- living, breathing account of kind of Eagles fandom and masculinity in you know the Northeast United States to a degree.
2: Yeah, it's always a tricky question answering. You know how much of your your novel is is True, nonfiction because yeah. <laughs> it's kind of uh, you know obviously it comes from somewhere. And Silver Linings Playbook was my first novel too, so. You know, they often say that the first novel is the most autobiographical. And to a large extent, I think that's true. You know, Kind of to set the stage of where I was in my life when I wrote the book, I had been teaching in South Jersey, like I mentioned before, and feeling very um, grateful to have a job and very connected to be coaching young people and teaching young people is very fulfilling. But I struggled secretly with a lot of anxiety and depression, which I um, treated self-medicated with alcohol, copious amounts of alcohol, often on Sundays down at the uh, at the vet and the link. Um, But I didn't really understand what was going on with me in my twenties. I just I knew I felt like there was something different about me, and you know I didn't think that other people were going through the same thing I was going through. But I really believed that it was because I wasn't following my dream of becoming a writer. And so I kind of had this idea that if I just quit teaching and started living the writing life, whatever, you know, that meant to me back then, that somehow, um, you know the depression and the anxiety would go away. I just thought that it was the stress of you know teaching full time and coaching, and I-, I taught at Haddonfield, which is you know a pretty um, uh, it's it's a school that's known for you know excelling, and so there's a lot of pressure for the yeah. kids to to excel, and you know the sports teams are supposed to win, and the kids are supposed to get high SAT. So it was a place where um, kids were under a lot of stress too, and I was I was also counseling a, a lot of kids. Um, who were dealing with depression, anxiety, and they would kind of find their way to me, and that also took a toll on me. I I was very happy to you know listen to kids and help kids through you know different issues, and um, especially kids that were dealing with mental health issues. But if you've ever supported one person through a mental health issue, you know that that can require a lot of strength and a lot of energy when you are supporting. Dozens and dozens of kids. It can it can drain you very very quickly, and and so I burned out, and I thought that teaching that writing would would be the cure for that, and so I went up to Massachusetts, and my wife and I we lived with my in laws for a while in uh, Pat's country, you know Patriots, and I suffered through. You know it seemed like in New England this was winning everything through the time that I lived there, so that was frustrating.
1: Were you there in two thousand four?
2: Yeah, I went there in two thousand four.
1: Oh right about no. That time.
2: Yeah, so it was oh, bad. No. It was it was funny. I remember when um this is kind of a side but one of my nephews who was I don't know, he may be he might have been 8 at the time of uh, when uh, the the Giants came back and beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl at the end and He's crying and crying, and I was saying to him, "You, you, you have so many Super Bowls, and you're only, you know, eight, and and here I am, you know, I don't remember how old I was in my thirties, and we didn't have any, and I just was looking at him. I can't believe you're crying over this, but that was kind of my life up there in New England. But uh, back to the, the the kind of mental health question, I was, I was writing every day, and it was an MFA program, but the depression and the anxiety didn't really go away. And the drinking increased and I was I was all alone. Um, I didn't really have many friends up there. The guys I went to the link with were in Philly. And so I, I, I got homesick and I started to write um, about a character who was dealing with mental health issues. I had worked when my first year out of college in a place called Bancroft in Haddonfield. And I worked in a, a lockdown unit, which was called Linden's. And I worked primarily with people who had brain trauma. And one of the things about people who had suffered brain trauma is they lose their filter. And so I created this character, of Pat Peoples, that was kind of half inspired by the loneliness I felt um, dealing with depression, anxiety, and also half inspired with some of the people I had encountered in the lockdown unit who were dealing with brain trauma. And in the book, it's slightly different than the movie. It's kind of hidden because it's from Pat's point of view, but you you do... Um, spoiler alert here, you do learn towards the end of the book that he did suffer from, uh, from brain trauma. And uh, one of the things I loved about working with the people who had suffered with brain trauma was that they would always kind of tell you whatever they were thinking. And so it became this kind of wonderful conduit or a voice where I could just um, look at mental health and emotions and feelings through this voice of Pat Peoples, who was just going to tell you whatever he was going to Say whatever was going on in his head, he was just going to kind of emote through the book. And I always say that it was a way for me to trick myself into coming out um, as someone who suffers with depression and anxiety um, because I could put on the mask of fiction and tell myself that, you know, this really is a character. And it was, it wasn't the story of me, but I could kind of process a lot of the things that I was going through um by writing the silver linings playbook. And when I was doing that in a basement, an unfinished basement in Massachusetts, it felt really, really, really safe because I never thought it would be published. I mean I dreamed it would be published, but I never knew it would become a movie and an Oscar, you know, winning movie at that. And so when I finished it and I showed it to my wife, she said, Oh my God, this is really good. And then I sent it out and, you know, I got an agent and before we knew it we had a movie deal and that's when it got a little scary because I started to realize people are going to ask me questions about, you know, why did you write this novel and where is this coming from? And growing up in South Jersey in the the late seventies and the eighties and early nineties, people just didn't talk at all about mental health. And I grew up in a culture where men were supposed to be stoic and they didn't hug each other. And you didn't say, I love you. And you definitely did not talk about your feelings. So It was a really, really scary time for me to put the Silver Linings playbook in the world. And I I had severe anxiety attacks before I published. Um, I just was convinced that something horrible was going to happen because I I had written this kind of fictitious, truthful thing that I was putting into the world.
1: Yeah, I think about my own experience with the work. Uh, I was familiar with the movie, as I'm sure most people were before they go back and read read that original novel that you wrote. And I went into the movie theater with my pal, Austin, I guess that was, you know, fall winter-ish 2012. And I had no idea of the movie beyond the concept. This was this Eagles fan and Jennifer Lawrence was in it and everyone thought she was good looking. So everyone wanted to see it. Uh, but at the time I was having severe depression, anxiety issues that no one was aware of. And I almost felt like I needed to leave the theater at a certain point where it got so real, not in the sense that it was a wake up call for me, but just that. I was so overwhelmed with emotion and didn't even realize going into it what I was going to be hit with. So I kind of can understand your potential anxiety with wondering if, you know, how are people going to react to this? Are they going to like it. Are they going to think it's something's wrong with me? Because I I wrote about something that, you know, is personal to me, even though it is, is in this sort of pseudo fictitious setting.
2: The thing that really hit me when the book was published, there were two things that were super interesting was there were a lot of people that I knew who never talked about mental health with me ever. Um, guys I went to the Eagles games with or guys I grew up with um, that would come up to me and say, Hey, you know, how do you know about this stuff? Cause me too. And it really led to a lot of people, you know, I don't want to use the word coming out, but you know, people sure. opening up about mental health and in a way that was really um, refreshing and it was just kind of like people that I thought, would not understand were actually secretly going through the same thing. The other thing that was interesting, both with the movie and the book, and it started of course with the book cause it was published much earlier than the movie, than the movie came out, was people would say to me, um, you know, I read, like, I would go to a, a book event and someone would come through the signing line and say, I read your book, the silver linings playbook. It was the funniest book I ever read. I laughed all the way through. It was so hilarious. And then literally the next person in line would come up with tears in their eyes and say, I read your book. I really loved it, but I cried all the way through. It just it just tore me apart. It was really emotional and really hard to read. And I noticed right away that certain people were reading it as a comedy and certain people were reading it as a tragedy. And it said so much about where they were and what their struggles were in their life. And the same with the film, too. You know, like yourself, you said you were overcome with emotion. There are so many people that just watched the film and watched it as a light hearted comedy that was kind of funny. And, um, you know, they felt great when they left. And there are other people that I knew that the film, they loved the film, but it completely devastated them. And, um, you know, they went and watched it again and again. And it just had these cathartic experiences that were just very draining and so, you know, it was interesting to see, and I don't think either response is right or wrong, but I think, you know, people come at the material with their own lived experiences. They come with their own baggage. They come with their own experiences.
1: Yeah. I first read the novel. I was doing a lot of reading in January, 2018. Uh, I had graduated from college in December, twenty. 20- Seventeen, I'd I'd taken off some time from college. I was living at home. I didn't have a full time job. As I like to tell people retroactively, I timed my unemployment perfectly with the Eagles' eventual Super Bowl run. So to kill time when I wasn't, you know, I was either, you know, running three or four miles or doing jumping jacks in my backyard the way Pat people does when he's anxious and doesn't know what to do with himself. Uh, To go to bed earlier at night, I would try to read to kind of tire myself out. So you know after joking about the movie and never seeing the reading the book i finally got the book and you know i think it was a mix for me i am a very emotional person clearly i'm someone who very pro you know guys crying guys showing emotion so i cried a ton during the book but there was also a bunch of times that i laughed because i thought wow that's really just me and my dad that's me and my dad's crazy friend tailgating that's you know my mom when my mom is making dinner and i'm over with my parents my dad's freaking out on tv and i'm freaking out and i'm also freaking out that both of my parents are freaking out for different reasons. So I kind of get both sides of it. It is a comedy. This parts of the book are hilarious. But at the same time, if you can see if you're the type of person who can put yourself into Pat's shoes and not to say that my life's tragic or everyone's life's tragic, but they can see that kind of drama and tragedy through Pat's eyes even though they may have experienced it firsthand themselves.
2: Yeah, and that was my experience writing the novel and even when I've gone back and reread it, I don't do that often, but I have read it since the movie came out. And, you know, I, I, I always say if I'm not laughing and crying during my writing experience and the book's not good. And, you know, I, there were, you know, there's parts when I was laughing hysterically writing the novel and there were parts that, um, you know, that I was crying when I was reading the novel. And it's funny when I worked, when I first started working, my first year out of college, I mentioned I worked at Bancroft and the Lindens. And one of the first things that you learn when you're working in a lockdown unit when, you know, you're having to do restraints and meds and everything else is you learn that if the when you get a new staff member, if they don't laugh during the day, they never they never came back and I, I don't mean laughing at the people we were working with, just laughing at the absurdity of life, the absurdity of the situation that we were putting in every day. If they couldn't find some type of humor, they rarely lasted in that line of work. And I, I just think that, you know, tragedy and comedy, laughing and crying are, are just, they're just two different responses to, you know, what is often the absurdity of life, you know, the, the absurd situations that we that we find ourselves in. And tension builds up within ourselves um, either through living or, you know, reading a story. And and that's how we release the tension. You know, it's either we cry or we laugh. And, you know, so I think those, those two things are very related.
1: I think back to me telling my dad that I was going to be doing this interview. I was very excited to tell everyone uh, because I like to joke like, Oh, now I can't write a novel about my own life because this novel already exists. That's basically the same thing, like one of those types of things.
2: That's not true, by the way.
1: Oh, no, no. I'm going to write mine. Don't worry. Please do. And that I'm talking to my dad. I'm like, have you actually ever seen the movie? Obviously, he's an Eagles season ticket holder. He's why I'm a crazy Eagles fan. Just, you know, I have that traditional, you know, Philadelphian relationship relation with my father. We're quite close. We're, you know, probably we're much more emotional than Pat and his father is in the book in terms of our emotional connection. Uh, but there's still similarities there, and I was like, "Did you have you ever seen the movie?" And he goes, "Like a year or two ago, someone at work is talking about it, and they're like, like, you should.' Everyone calls my dad by his last name, Clance. You should, you should watch the movie. You'd probably really like it. You'd relate to it, you and your kid or whatever." And he said, "Went home and watched like 20 minutes and was hysterically crying and told it off. Why would people think I like that movie?" And I was mm-hmm. like, "Well, if you if you didn't like the movie, definitely don't read the book. It's going to be ten times worse for you then."
2: Why would you say that? What, what what do you think he objected to in the movie that would be stronger in the book?
1: Oh, I don't think he objected to it. I think he was overwhelmed with emotion. Not that oh, he disliked well, well, it. I think it. Oh, I'm so sorry. In that way, I think it hit way too close to home in the relationship, and certainly what he sees in myself and and Pat, or you know, the, the version of Pat that Bradley Cooper portrays in the film. The you know, to a degree, anal working out from you know depression, anxiety, thinking that oh, I need to work out every second of the day to you know win over this this girl or different things like that, or also you know getting. Drunk and being an idiot about the Eagles and talking to my therapist about the Eagles and, you know, wearing the Sean Jackson jersey everywhere, those types of things. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like it was only more pronounced in the book because obviously a book can't really encapsulate everything that goes into a novel. Novel feels kind of uh, contradictory in a way where a movie is actual people and you're watching it, but a, a novel feels more real. There's more depth to it. And you see more insight into, I think, Pat's relationship with his father in the novel and kind of his larger social network with his brother, uh, with his friend, Ronnie. Also, uh, I may have just thought of his name, Ronnie, his last name is Brown in the book. And I think mm-hmm. of Ronnie Brown when, in 2011, when he was diving at the goal line and throw a pass. Do you remember that play?
2: Uh, vaguely, but that there it was not intentional. There was no connection intended at all.
1: It was a right before he was on the team, but I just thought, God, God damn, Ronnie Brown. <laughs> anyway, so I think there's more depth, more depth there. And you could see a, uh, there's more to Pat's Eagles Phantom and his just overall persona. There's more depth there. Uh, and you have a greater sense of even his mental health, where I feel like the movie, you know, skewed a little bit more towards comedy, even though there are, are certainly moments of drama and tragedy in it where it was a little bit different for the novel, which probably had more funny moments and more hilarious moments, but steered a little bit more towards drama uh, for me upon my initial reading of it. I guess, you know, two or so years ago.
2: Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, I was coming at it, you know, number one, I was literally an Eagles fan, whereas David O. Russell is not. And, you know, I was coming from it, the point of view of being a son um, and dealing with those issues. And, you know, my my relationship with my father is is much better now than it was then. Um, But there there was a distance that, you know, the Eagles bridge for my dad and myself. Um it was one of the few things that we did together um that we could discuss without getting into arguments. Um one of the very few things and, and so I was coming at it from, you know, this son who really wanted to connect with his dad. And the only way to do that was through eagles. You know, that was kind of my inspiration. And also my grandfather and my uncle, who were very you know, they were, they were vets, World War Two vet and a Vietnam vet, and they were very gruff men. They were pretty much the antithesis of, you know, an English major or, you know, a fiction writer. And, you know, David well, Granger. Yeah, exactly. David you know, we, we had, we had eagles, that was it. And, and so David, David O. Russell was coming at the, the, the film from the point of view of father and, um. You know, so Robert De Niro was coming at it from the point of view of a father, and so they they rewrote that that role, um, you know, to reflect that, and you know, to to kind of um, put a, a different spin on it. The other thing too is that Bradley Cooper and uh, Robert De Niro have a very, um, you know, I don't know if they would say father son relationship, but mentor mentee. They have a very close relationship, and so they definitely wanted to capitalize on that as well. So I think that, you know, the the differences in the film, I think that's a big one. You know, David was, David Russell was, you know, looking at it, you know, thinking about his relationship with his own son, which he talked about, uh, you know, so it was a very different, a very different experience that way, very different, you know, lens into the story.
1: Frequently in my life, the Eagles, as again, as it relates to my mental health, have been on two sort of wavelengths where... You know, quite frequently, it's been that they've kind of been this silver lining for me or this, you know, saving factor, this escapism for me where three hours every Sunday in the fall, I don't have to worry about my work or my schooling or my love life, relationships, family problems, all these other things. I'm able to kind of be a part of something that's bigger than myself for this amount of time. And then during the week, if I'm driving around, I'm listening to WIP on the radio, I'm listening to podcasts. I'm reading the Inquirer, I'm reading philly.com, bleedinggreennation.com. And I'm doing all of these things, but to, and it helps me get through the day. It helps me get through these tough moments in a life. But the flip side of that is that I was frequently masking the issues that I had and like putting them into this like crazy Eagles fan persona, which was true, which is, you know, the real me to a degree. But at the same time, you know, there are points where it made me think that they were making my mental health worse at the <laughs> same time as you know, they were making not, not that a joke. i like, Oh, the Eagles are making me qu- crazy. Like quite literally, you know, after a loss, especially because, you know, as you talked about alcoholism, yeah. you know, not alcoholism, just alcohol use. And that would be pretty frequently, obviously I, I tailgate and, you know, I do some, you know, BGN run stuff at tailgates, but I'm obviously someone who who's been to an Eagles game in the past and, Woke up the next day and didn't know, didn't see a single play at the game. Or yeah. what well, was at the game, didn't remember a single thing, didn't know who won until I woke up at six o'clock in the morning the next day. And it's those things where I'm like, is it worth it? Is it worth having this, you know, communal factor that, you know, unites me with my family friends, my dad, you know, all the kids I grew up with in South Philly, my college friends I'm still in contact with to the point that, you know, after a loss, um, 12 beers deep, and I'm like stumbling home from the link back to my parents' place in South Philly at midnight after a Sunday night football loss or a Thursday night or Monday night or whatever. And I'm just like, why do I put all my energy into this one thing that, you know, I guess, what am I, 26? 25 out of 26 years uh, made me miserable at the end of the day. In our correspondence, you had talked about that you're not maybe as crazy gung ho as you might have been, and you kind of just follow the team. September to February. And I could really empathize with that needing to kind of take a break from times with the team and not have it fill up kind of every moment of your day and every waking thought. And, you know, there's been times even during the Super Bowl run, the build up to that during the season, I'm just like, why you know, things were going well with the team, but at the same time, I was still if I'm watching a road game with my friends at home, like getting blasted and just thinking, like, why am I doing this to myself? Why do I love this team so much? So do you feel as if you stepped away from the team some and do you think it was almost too burdensome to be that far into it, to be kind of, you know, the people's family deep into it?
2: I definitely got to a point where I started to think that the fandom was unhealthy. Um, I think a lot of that was tied to alcohol use, you know, for good, bad or indifferent. You know, Eagles is was kind of synonymous with Absolutely, drinking a lot of alcohol, and I actually went to the last game. I went to was not this past season, but this season before, and I I went, and I I went sober, and I didn't drink anything the whole time. And the beer guy in our section, where my family sits, he he knows me, and he you know he kept saying, "You sure you don't need a beer?" And you know I'd lost a lot of weight because I was working out, and you know people were saying, "Is there something wrong with you? Like, are you okay?" And it was it was really hard to go to the game without drinking. It's impossible. Um, yeah, it was really tough. And I, I was pounding water. Like I just kept drinking bottles and bottles and bottles of water. And there's part of me that, you know, I, I think back to why was I so obsessed, especially in college and in my twenties, um, where, you know, Eagles, you know, you said three hours a week.
1: Well, for me, Eagles, that was you know, it's like twelve hours. You know, you get to three hours on Sunday. And then every other second of the week when you're like reading the paper and stuff like that. But,
2: you know, we would show up, you know, at the link, it, you know, we'd get there and sometimes it's 730 in the morning, you know, and we'd be, they'd be there all day, you know, and it was, it was great. And we'd tailgate and, you know, your friends would be there and, you know, you had your crew. And um, I think there's, there's something very tribal. There's something very um, communal, you know, to have a fan. And everybody there was your friend as long as you were wearing the right uniform. And you know, especially back at the vet, uh, you know, when, in my college days, when we went to seven hundred level, it was it was always dangerous too. There was always a, a crazy fight. You know, someone in Dallas, Jersey would get almost beat to death in a bathroom, and you, you just saw wild things. You know, just drug use was rampant, and uh, you know, just out in the open, and it, it felt dangerous. Um, it doesn't feel that way anymore, of course. Uh, you know the days of the Honorable Judge McCaffrey are over, but um, you know it was. I think back to what really drew me into that fandom, and and I think it was, you know, this sense of of meaning making. You know, I think that, uh, you know, especially people who are dealing with depression, and anxiety. There's there's a school of thought that that says you know besides the chemicals that are raging in your brain or whatever genetics you have. Part of that could be, you know, you, you haven't figured out, you know, what it, it's existential, you know, what what is your your meaning making device? And when you go to the link on Sunday and you're in green and everybody's wearing green and you're cheering every time you get a football uh, through, you know, across a line, you know, uh, everybody's doing the same thing. It becomes almost this religion. I don't think it's an accident that, you know, NFL football is on Sunday, um, I think it becomes this source of of meaning-making and this source of identity. And for me, it tied me very closely to my father and my grandfather and my uncle. There was nothing that we could talk about in the entire world except for sports and, you know, mostly Eagles football. And so that was, you know, it, it's it's not hard to think of, you know, drinking down at the link as communion. You know, you drink a beer and you eat a cheesesteak and there's your communion, you know, every Sunday and it means something. Uh, and as I got older and, you know, I started to, you know, try to make meaning in other ways, you know, with, you know, my art or with my relationship with my wife, it it started not to be as important. And, you know, I, I don't mean to downplay the Eagles. I still watch every game and I, I, still, I still love the Eagles, but it's not as, uh, I don't need to go to... The, the, the link at seven thirty in the morning anymore, and you know I don't. I, I, I think that's a good thing. I don't know if that's just maturity, or uh, you know maybe I found meaning elsewhere. Or, you know I did the whole silver linings thing, and you know that's kind of over with in my life. Uh, you know, so I, I don't mean to demean it. I don't think it's a it's a it's a negative no. thing, um, but I do think with my depression, my anxiety, there was such hype to go to the game, and I would get so excited, and even when the Eagles would win. Sometimes I'd ride that, that train, you know, we'd ride it to Center City and then we'd take that walk to, you know, get to the train that takes you to New Jersey and and just get home and you just feel kind of, you know, okay, now what? You know, you had this big moment and like you said if you if you had had 10 or 12 beers, which I often did, you know, pretty regularly. Sometimes you wouldn't even remember, you know, the score or who scored what touchdowns until you read the paper the next morning. You would think, well, why is this so important? If, if it's so important, why am I getting blackout drunk at the games? You know, why, why am I drinking so much if this is supposed to be so fulfilling? And, and so it was kind of a, a mystery for me, um, you know, because if I go to the Eagles game and eat all day and I drink all day, if I have 14, 15 beers and cheesesteak and pretzel and whatever else... You never feel good the next morning. You know, you feel a little. No. Yeah,
0: you know, even after a win.
2: Yeah, even if even after a win, you're not feeling great. There's there's a sense of regret. Um. So you know, I I, I think I, I think there was a, you know a little obsession there for me for a while, and then maybe a little transference, and you know, I wasn't getting meaning out of my life. So you know, you attach that to the Eagles, and I think there's a healthy way to be a fan, and you know, sure, there's a lot of people that do that, and there's an unhealthy way to be a fan, and and I think silver linings was was my way of trying to figure out the difference between those two things.
1: Yeah, it's hard. Um, you talk about your classic, your family beer guy in a way, and saying, "Are you sure you're not drinking? Is everything okay?" And I just, you know, think to being down there, and you know, maybe I'm, I'm thinking to myself, "I'm not going to drink until, you know, if I, obviously, someone who gets there right when they open the whole seven o'clock in the morning thing." Sure. And being like, hey, you know what, I'm not going to have a drink until. I go in there, you know what I mean? Or I'm only going to, I'm not going to have a drink until 11 o'clock. And it's, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. And my dad's friends like, yo, Shane, you off the wagon today? You're not drinking? Like kind of like, not even like busting my chop, just being like, is there something wrong? I'm like, Jesus H dude. I, I just want to, you know, go in and re- remember that, you know, Zach Ertz actually caught a touchdown from the 15 yard line and not kind of know the Eagles one, but don't know a single thing that happened. and you know, it's just hard and it's a, it's, I don't hate it. It's it's a love and hate relationship you have with the team uh, besides just the on the field exploits of like, you no, know, I love the Eagles, but I hate, you know, when Nelson Aguilar drops a pass or I hate when Sidney Jones gets burned. It's, it's more than there's a love and hate of, I love this thing. It, it brings me closer to my girlfriend, my best friends, my family, but at the same time, it leaves me, you know, hating myself frequently and obviously I do this podcast I do an eagle a newsletter where I talk about the eagles almost every day I write you know seven eight eight hundred nine hundred words even some days and you know I tweet four thousand times a day about the Eagles or the sixers or you know I guess music too and it's just at the end of the day you're like I love this I love it I wouldn't change anything I, I literally met I don't I didn't write about it in anything you've written me but I I literally met my girlfriend who I live with who's at our kitchen table, probably ten feet away from me, I'm in this little second bedroom. Uh, I met her at the Eagles Super Bowl parade. Like if the Eagles don't win the Super Bowl, I'm probably in my parents' basement drinking a beer right now at six o'clock at night after working some crappy construction job because I took time off of school and I probably would have never went back or finished. So I didn't have you know this one thing to guide me through it. So there's always this give and take where. The Eagles have given me everything in my life. They've given me purpose at times, and at the same time, it feels like they've taken so much from me.
2: Well, I think there's, you know, it's, there's a healthy way to do it.
1: Yeah, and I'm not saying yeah. My my fandom borders on it's frequently it's healthy sometimes, but it's frequently unhealthy.
2: Yeah, and I I, I think that's the way life goes too, right? You know, it's Absolutely. um, yeah. you know, it's it's funny too. I think back to those days at the vet and when I was at Lasalle. My buddy Bill Rhoda and I bought season tickets to 700 level. You could actually afford them when you were in college back then. It wasn't that much money. It was surprisingly affordable. And he's one of the few people from that time period in my life. And he's the only person who I know from high school that I still talk to. And I think it's because we're both Eagles fans. And we still to this day talk about the Eagles after every game. We talk about it. And, you know, we're very different people than we were when we were. 19 20 years old and you know to be honest there we we live very very different lives but we still have that common bond of eagles um you know and my my father you know my relationship with my father has, you know been up and down over the years but we still talk about the eagles all the time and, and i think that's that's a good thing you know when i went to that game and i, I was completely sober it was it was hard because you know I don't want to use the word trigger, but, you know, there were all the triggers were there. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it was, but it was also kind of cool that the beer guy was concerned about my health. You know, he's, I think he thought, because I had lost 50 pounds and, and I'd gotten in shape, but when you lose I a lot, you were
1: sick or something.
2: he thought I had cancer, you know, he, why aren't you drinking? And you know, it was kind of nice that he remembered who I was and, you know, he was concerned about my health and, you know, the people around said, oh, we remember this guy. And, you know, there's, there, there's something really Really nice and heartening about that, um, you know. I just think with all things, you know, I've been completely sober off drugs and alcohol for for two years now, and you know, with, with all things, you have to relearn how to do those things in a healthy way. When you're doing, you now, I like the saying like how you do one thing is how you do everything. Well, how I was doing Eagles football in my twenties was was how I was doing everything. It was how I was teaching. It was how I was being a husband. It was how I was being a friend. It was kind of you know like, like Bradley Cooper says in the, in a movie, I was white knuckling it. And I kind of had this fake persona and, you know, I, it kind of appeared like I was out of control. And when I was at the games, it didn't look like I was like, I wasn't stumbling drunk or fighting anyone, but, you know, I, I was, had a lot of alcohol in me and that's how I was keeping it together. Um, you know, so I think you kind of have to relearn how to, you know when you get healthy healthy especially when you start dealing with whatever is causing the depression and the anxiety or whatever the mental health issues that you have going on you know the old way of the unhealthy way of coping has got to be replaced with something and so i think you know the way i used to engage with the eagles and you know it used to be my number one meaning making thing or you know the it was this this drunken thing i did every week to kind of release all the stress you know, now that I'm 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 running and exercising and, you know, I've, I've worked through some of my issues and, you know, I, I use my writing, you know, I sit down to watch the game with my wife or, you know, when I go home or I go watch it with my, my boys in Philly, it's a different experience for me. And, you know, how I'm living my life is how I engage with the Eagles, you know, and I think that that's true. How you do one thing is how you do everything. And that changes over the course of, you know, 20 years. You said you're what, 26? Is that what you said?
1: Yeah, turn yeah, turn twenty six as well.
2: Yeah, point. I'm forty six. So you know, I was right where you were. You know, back in the day. So you know,
1: yeah, it seems seems pretty similar as yeah. you're going on about your own in twenties.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know, and I, it's funny because I miss those days in in some ways. You know, you miss being um,
1: young and free in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: You kind of look back, but you know, I would I would never do those things today either.
0: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price, line.
1: And I did say it was my birthday this month, but it's also Mental Health Awareness Month. May is, and I think that's, that's right. pretty pertinent to our conversation as it's been. Uh, and one person I've seen speaking up about it on a couple of different interviews and podcasts and on social media is Brian Dawkins, who is my favorite athlete ever. Obviously, probably a lot of Philadelphia's favorite athlete ever. Um, And he's someone who, not until the last couple of years, has been public about his own mental health struggles. And I'm not sure if that's something you've been keeping up on or have been aware of or have seen or heard. He talked about in his Hall of Fame speech uh, in the summer of 2018, talking about depression, especially he faced this a lot earlier in his career when he first came to Philadelphia. The Eagles just, you know, money struggles in terms of keeping up with his family and just kind of there's, you know, a sickening pain inside him all the time. And that's something I related to. But at the same time, it was so strange, but so relieving to know that this person, who in the eyes of millions of people, is the personification of tough and hard and, and gritty and explosive and physical and, you know, masculine and, you know, kind of the paragon of what this blue collar Philadelphia working class ideal of an athlete is. And that, that person could have, even though they are this person who's literally on a pedestal in Philadelphia, that he could have some of the issues that I did uh, just seemed so comforting in a way to know that, you know, my childhood idol, obviously, he wouldn't be your childhood idol given your age disparity uh-huh. there. But thanks for reminding me. <laughs> well, I mean, I write in the same, yeah, he's your uh, equivalent idol, I guess. Uh, I was a big uh, Arkansas so Fred fan friend.
2: back in the day.
1: Oh, yeah. Fred Barnett?
2: Yeah, I was big. I, I love Fred Barnett. But no, I hear what you're saying about, you know, B-Doc. And, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting to consider, and I don't, I don't even know what to do with this, um, is he great because of the depression and then the anxiety? Is that what drove him? You know, you, you, even people you hear like Kanye West talks about his bipolar disorders as a superpower and you know i often think back you know a lot of people ask me how do i do what you did you know how do i how do i write a book and you know have it turned into a movie and you know have that win an oscar and you know of course there's there's no there's no blueprint for that but the one thing that i had was that i knew that I couldn't go in and keep teaching every day. It literally was an impossibility. My anxiety and my depression wouldn't let me do that. If I didn't have anxiety and depression, I'd still be teaching at Haddonfield Memorial High School and I'd probably be completely okay with that. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, teaching is a noble profession, but the anxiety and depression drove me to try to find a different solution that would allow me to thrive. and. Um, Deal with those feelings and 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 explore them in a way that most of the other people I was teaching with didn't understand, which is why they didn't quit teaching when they were thirty and sell their house and move in with their in laws and write a novel. And you know, I'm I'm not I'm always careful not to say that you know we should wish depression or anxiety on people because we shouldn't. It's not fun, you know. I, I I I don't.
1: I agree,
2: yeah, it's not something that I wanted. It's not something that I signed up for, um but when you look at people like Brian Dawkins and you know he talks about having depression, I often think, you know, is that part of what made him so great? You know is that the you know the stone that sharpened his sword like we need something to fight against, and you know there's there's a narrative that you can choose. You know, to be a victim, or you could be, you know, the hero of the journey, and it's 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 hard to be the hero of the journey. But I think the people like Brian Dawkins, or the people that we cheer for, um, you know, on Sunday, they're, they're people who have made decisions and have struggled and overcome great odds to be out there and to be to be the the people that are worthy of of the cheers and you know the Hall of Fame inductions and all of that and. And so I, I think it's interesting, you know, it's it's always great, you know, to raise awareness, you know, and I think to take stigma away is, is fantastic. And I definitely hear what you're saying that, you know, it's heartening to hear someone like Brian Dawkins, this great man, struggle with depression. But I, I also I also think it's important to realize that that's that's probably part of what makes him great. You know, that's part of what makes him who he is. It's probably part of what makes him such a, a fantastic human being. And I remember when I was teaching, I, I quickly got a reputation as as a teacher who was really good with troubled kids. And you know, it almost became that I was I was this unofficial counselor where troubled kids would come and talk to me, and you know, I could empathize with them. And I know that if I I didn't struggle with anxiety and depression, I wouldn't have been the teacher that I was back in the day, and I definitely wouldn't have been the writer. Um, and so, you know, I, I like to point that out because I think sometimes with young people, they get this narrative about, you know, you have a mental illness or you have depression or you have anxiety or whatever, and, and that means that that um, somehow you're less than or other. But, you know, we, we all have different things in our lives, and I think that the important thing is, is how we view them, you know, how we look at them and how we frame them. Like, what's the story that we tell ourselves and so, you know, when we see someone like Brian Dawkins, who, you know, is this great hero and he, he admits that he has vulnerabilities, I think that, you know, it's awesome that he admits that he has that vulnerability. That's great. But it's also important to realize that that vulnerability is the thing that probably drove
1: him to greatness. Yeah, that that at times has been sort of a tug of, tug of war for me in the sense that I have bipolar disorder and it's terrible and, you know, has caused me several setbacks in my life, some you know, of my own doing to a degree. Sure. But I I think to myself, if I didn't have those sort of manic jolts and phases where I could type away a thousand words or anything like that, would I still have, you know, the creative pursuits that I have, would I still have the times I have this great passion for life and passion for the eagles and passion for my girlfriend and my friends and this, you know, at times I could have this great vivacity to me and just be such a kind of a loving individual wanting to, you know, express how much so many people mean to me. And, you know, I I really value that in myself. But then at times, you know, as much as I kind of wish it away, wish I didn't have to deal with depression, anxiety, or other times when I don't want to get out of bed, or I feel like crap, or I hate the way I look. And, you know, these are common issues. But, you know, dealing with anxiety and depression can be uh, a different issue, so to speak. And at the end of the day, I think, do I want to have bipolar disorder? Do I want to struggle with mental health? No, but it makes me who I am. It makes me the right art I am. It makes me, you know, if I didn't have mental and a mental illness I deal with, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast and chatting with you right now because that's kind of the initial connection we have beyond being Eagles fans. That's what kind of drives me to, to your work. That kind of drives my work and, you know, everything in my life. So I feel like you put that in a tad different perspective than me instead of just kind of, the worshiping of people who are saying that, you know, they're dealing with this and it's empathetic and it's, you know, makes you realize that, you know, it's destigmentation and makes you realize more people are dealing with it than you think. But there is, again, that perspective where you realize that the things that work against you at times can ultimately be used to your benefit if you. Have the right kind of mindset. Yeah, I
2: think we all need something to struggle against, and you know, again, like I want to emphasize that, you know, my depression, anxieties take me to has taken me to some very, very dark places, especially with you know the alcoholism that I was dealing with, often very privately. But I know, as someone who deals with depression, the story or the narrative that you you put on that can radically shift your ability to deal with it. And again, like, I'm not trying to suggest that help from psychiatrist or, you know, medication or exercise or whatever it is that you're dealing with. All those things are important. You know, they're just different parts of, uh, they're different tools in the bag that you use. But I do think that, you know, the narrative and the way that we look at it, um, is, is, really, really important because there are times In my 20s, when I went really, really dark when I was teaching, and I wore a smile every day to school. And if you had asked my students, or if you'd asked the people I'd work with, they would have said, You know, Matthew Craig, that guy is, he's like the happiest guy in the building. You know, he's the guy that, you know, everybody goes to. He's the guy that pumps you up before the game, before, you know, he's the coach that's always out there, you know, shaking your hand in the hallway. And I was, but internally, I was in such, A dark, dark place. And, you know, the narrative that I came up with that, you know, it was either, okay, like you can kill yourself, you know, you can go to that kind of dark place and you can end all of this, or you can come up with some type of other story. And and the story that I started telling myself was that, you know, maybe you could be a writer, maybe you could work towards something, maybe you could come up with a plan, you know, maybe you could have a strategy, like Pat says in, in the movie. Version of the silver linings playbook, and and I think that's important, you know, and to kind of take our our story of of sports um, and eagles back to a positive place, you know, this story of Brian Dawkins is is such a great story because of you know like the, that that ex- that Hall of Fame speech is what makes him such an exceptional player. It wasn't just that he played well; it was that he always said the right thing, and he had the right attitude, and he had the right the the right um, the right worldview. Uh, and that's what we admire about him. And, it, and then to know that he dealt with depression on top of that, that's just what makes it even that more, um, grand and that more noble. So, you know, I, I think that's, a, that's an important message that I like to put out there, especially for young people who are struggling with mental health, but it's a, it's a, it's something that I have to remind myself about all the time, you know, cause I still go to dark places when, you know, even after all of the work I've done and even after quitting alcohol and getting in shape and losing weight and doing the emotional work and, you know, working through things with my wife, you know, there's still, it's still there, you know, the depression is still there and the anxiety is still there because you're never done. It's like, you know, I did a bunch of dips and pushups today and, you know, I might have done 150 of them, but tomorrow I'm going to have to do them again. You're never done. You know, you've always got to do the maintenance. And I think the stories that we tell, whether they're the the stories of fiction, you know, that like in the novels that I write or they're the stories that um, you know, we tell about our city or the stories that we tell about our sports teams, or the stories that you tell on your blog, or, you know, the the articles that you write, they matter. Narrative matters. And, you know, narrative can really it can really save people. It's been it's been a lifesaver for me. And so, you know, I just like to I like to emphasize that.
1: Yeah, this has been quite a weighty conversation and Pretty enthralling for me, but I think we should end things on a positive note. Sure. So the one one thing finally happened that, you know, that little kid in New England couldn't relate to was, you know, the thought of what happens when your team wins the Super Bowl for the first time. Yeah. So put me in your shoes. I've been, I've been putting myself in Pat people's shoes all day. Put me in your shoes of what happened to you and what was your experience when the Eagles finally won the Super Bowl.
2: I know you wanted to end on a happy note, so I, I feel oh no, terrible oh my god, tor- I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's it, I'm I, so sorry. I had, I had such a weird reaction to the Eagles winning. You know, it was I, I, of course I went I went nuts, and you know I jumped up and down. You know, my wife and I hugged, and I, I and then I, I actually cried afterwards. And you know, talking about being vulnerable, and I, I didn't really understand why. It was, but there was something about them winning. I just think that, you know, growing up in the Philadelphia area and, you know, growing up in Oakland, which is kind of like a blue-collar town, and it was, it was a place where you weren't supposed to win, um, you know, and the, the message that I got as a kid is, you, you know, you weren't supposed to win. And then, you know, the Eagles were my team because they they didn't win, and there was something about never winning that felt comfortable to me. And then when you win, um, after all of those years, it's just, I don't know if it was like, well, what's next? Or, you know, this was the thing I wanted, I waited for my whole life and my grandfather and my uncle didn't get to see this. And, you know, did it live up to the hype? I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out, but it was, um, it was a really weird response for me. And it was also right around the time when I was, you know, being done with alcohol, too. So I was kind of emotional at the time, too. But it was a really strange, strange experience for me. Um, But I'm glad they won, believe me. But uh, if I'm going to be honest, it was it was a it it left me pondering for a long time.
1: I think that's a type of identity crisis that I've seen people discuss as it relates to the Cubs winning the World Series back in 2016, where, you know, it had been over 100 years since they won and. You know, generations and generations of people and fans. They're the way we had in our like I myself currently, you in the past, have built this identity around being an Eagles fan. This is your persona, this is the person you carry yourself as, as you know, someone who never wins, and that was so entrenched in those Cubs fans that what happens when you win and your kind of identity isn't what it was to begin with. My whole thing as an Eagles fan was I'm this, you know, depressed guy who loves this team that I know at the end of the day is never gonna win the Super Bowl. So, you know who am I as a, maybe not even just as an Eagles fan, but who am I as a person when I don't have that one singular thing in the back of my mind, you know, like you're blowing out your birthday candles and what do you wish for type thing? Like the impossible has already been done.
2: Yeah. And I think identifying with the the team that loses, you know, in the novel I made um, Pat obsessed with Hank basket. And the reason why I did that was because Hank basket had a, a good training camp that year and everybody was kind yeah. of excited, but I never really thought he would get into the game. And I thought that that was going to be the joke. Cause I wrote, I wrote the book in real time. I would, I would watch a game and then I would write the next couple chapters and then watch a game and I followed the season. And then when Hank started to to do well, it was this, it was this, this kind of fun thing in, in, in the novel. But I think there's something about, you know, especially when I grew up and, um, you know, especially my father too. Like just identifying with this team that never wins. You know, there was something almost uh, masochistic about it. But it was like our team that, yeah. never, like, we're the we're the team that never wins. But we still go to the games, and there was there, you got credit for showing up even though we never won the big game. So, you know, when you win, you have to kind of figure out, oh, well, now we're on top. Now what do we do? You now who are we now? So I think that identity identity crisis is. It's interesting. And you know to be honest with you it happened when I published too. It was really odd. You know, you think you, you want your whole life to publish a book and then when it starts to come out it was, it was very it was very kind of um, disorienting for me. You know, obviously you're you're super privileged and you know you're excited about it, but it was like who am I now? I used to be a struggling writer and then you publish and it's like wow, now I'm somebody. My whole identity has shifted and it was, it was a weird experience for me.
1: Yeah, that wasn't the answer I was expecting, but...
2: (laughs) I know, I didn't want to end on it. I should have made something up.
1: No, I I would much... I mean, (laughs) the whole essence I get from reading your work is a sense of honesty, maybe to a brutal level, even in the way kind of Pat speaks to people and how frank he can be in the novel. So I think that was... I mean, I was someone who cried, you know, a ton the night they won, crying with my dad and my best friend. I'm on what was, I guess it might've been in a different way and less of maybe the way you were feeling, but more so in a, a sense of relief. Like there was this weight off my shoulders that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. And, you know, there's different types of crying, but mine, you know, I was hysterically crying, but it was more in the sense that, you know, I felt like Sisyphus finally got the rock over the hill or however up the mountain, however you want to say. it.
2: Yeah. You know, I I think for me, one of the things, I think I think it was almost like the story was over. You know, the story of the Eagles for me was over. And even though I still watch the games and, you know, I I've still watch every game since or I listen to them when I can't watch them on TV down there. But it, the story was over. You know, for me, it was the story of my team never won the Super Bowl and someday they're going to win. And then they won and it was over. And, uh, you know, I, again, I talked earlier about my nephews who, you know, they grew up and you know, they won. All four sports all the time. And that just was the reality. But, you know, I think there was something about looking forward to the day when someday the Eagles were going to win the Super Bowl. And you always kind of had that to look forward to. And that was part of the narrative for me. And then, then you get that and it was over. You know, that was it. And I don't think it will ever, I think when they win again, if they win again, I don't, I don't think it'll be the same. It'll, it'll be something that had already happened.
1: Yeah, it'll never be the same. But, you know, you still want it. I still get crazy during the games. I still love the feeling of walking into the link before a Cowboys game or before that playoff game that they lost back in January. You know, and still feeling. I mean, because you could just think there's different things you want them to win for. Like I, I wanted to see Carson once when, you know, obviously he was on the team in 2017, but I want to see him be. You know, you could create all these narratives in your mind, and sure. I think I do to kind of pump myself up and try to get it back to you know the feeling of that first time, like a like a first love type thing where. You know, it'll never be the same as that. It'll never be the same, you know, pure cathartic experience. But that's okay, because you know, someone was, you know, born yesterday who in Philadelphia who's going to be an Eagles fan one day and who's never seen the Eagles win the Super Bowl. And that's right. We'll have yeah. that going on. For them. And and I'm still a Sixers fan. That's so right. On my favorite basketball team whenever is never, never going to win the championship. So I have that going for me.
2: Well, they won once before, I believe.
1: Um, yeah, eighty-three. <laughs> well, sixty-seven and eighty-three. So yeah, I was around for you would have seen eighty. You, you would have seen eighty-three. I did not catch eighty-three. I was ten. So, but I remember okay. it. Yeah, my yeah, my dad would have been. I mean, it's fifty. So yeah, right around then. Wow. So your dad's
2: only four years older than I am. He's my peer. That's so.
1: <laughs> I feel old. Though. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> my dad's a little young. I definitely have a. Well, that's the thing that that kind of worked for me too. I had this. My parents are both fifty Gen Xers. And, you know, they were cool, like the, the cool parents. They were, they were not in a bad way. They let kid they weren't, you know, letting kids shrink underage. The way we talk about cool parents sometimes. They were just great people. And
2: yeah, Gen Xers, they are the great people. They really are.
1: Oh I mean, They were they're, they're the forgotten generation <laughs> between, you know, OK Boomer and then, yeah. you know, millennials and Gen Z or Gen whatever we're calling people now. Uh, just don't get I mean, do that, enough that's credit, part of the,
2: the Gen Xers.
1: no. Yeah, and then I I just think that you know having them be a younger age kind of is, particularly my dad helped me experience the the Eagles in a way that you know if my father was had me when when he was thirty nine forty instead of when he was you know twenty four twenty five I might have a completely different experience of you know watching the Eagles drinking with the Eagles all these different things so it's interesting because that's that's about the age my dad was when I was born
2: I think he was. 24 right around there so it's similar
1: yeah definitely because he feels like he could still do the same thing with me kind of keep up you know hanging out together drinking together doing those type of doing that bonding experience even if it's not the eagles just going into a Phillies game and having you know a couple of beers and a couple of hot dogs like it feels more doable i guess is the right maybe not the best word but when there's less of an age gap it, it makes it feel it feels natural know, like you're truly friends. Yeah. yeah it feels natural it feels like you know I would consider my dad my friend, one of my, maybe my best friend, uh, in a way. So, you know, we were still very paternal and son and, you know, a lot of the conflict you see presented in, uh, the Silver Linings playbook novel, or even the movie in that, de, uh, De Niro Cooper relationship is still there. And, uh, there can be like some distance there, but I'm sure you're, you're thankful your dad kind of raised you an Eagles fan. And I, you know, to a certain <laughs> degree in a certain way, it, you know, tr- Transformed your life though. Do you know what I mean? If you know, some days I, I would, you know, before the Super Bowl I wish like, I wish I never became a fan and never wish I did this. But in your case it gave you this, you know, this phenomenal debut novel that became uh, you know, David O. stinking Russell made a made a movie about something you wrote in, something that you were in and not physically in, but thematically were in. So it all evens out, right? Yeah, it's 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 kind of amazing to
2: think about you know, going down to the vet as a kid and then where I am now today. And, you know, just, you just, you just don't know, you know, it's it's strange. You know, it was a gift. It's what my father could give me, you know, the gift of the Eagles, you know, and all the insanity um, because he, he rode that train too, you know, growing up. I just remember if, if the Eagles won, it was a happy week. If they lost, it was not a happy week in my house. So
1: you know, I was yeah.
2: passing that on. You know, you, you take what you get and you make the best with it, so.
1: Yeah, it's never like you were walking in the vet with your dad as a kid and he patted you on the back and said, this team's going to mess you up so bad they're going to make a, a movie about it one day. No,
2: <laughs> I think I blew my dad's mind with all of this.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, my grandfather too, was just, um, yeah, it just was kind of, you know, it's it seems kind of faded when I look back now, but at the time it was just, Even just writing it, it was never, it was, I never thought it would go where it went. It was just, just this something that needed to come out of me. And I like to think that people who have really responded to the book, they they sense that. They sense that it's, it's just a natural expression um, of where I was at the time. And it's funny too, because, you know, it's, it's great to be on the Eagles podcast, but the people who love the novel are usually people who say, I don't, I don't, they're all over the world, they'll say, you know, I don't, I don't even know what NFL football is, but I still loved it. Or the best is all people from, you know, the Philippines will write and say I'm now a huge Eagles fan because I read Silver Linings playbook.
1: And oh my God. That's amazing.
2: Yeah. Stuff like that just blows my mind. They're like, we follow the Eagles because of your book. And, you know, that's, that's just wild, you know, and it just goes to show you that, um, you know, the, Football in the book is used as a metaphor, and you know that's what we do. You know, talking about narrative again, and you know the the common experiences and the mental health stuff. There's just so many people out there that can that can relate to that, and are hungry for conversations like the one that we're having today. And and so I hope you know the people listening will will take something from it. And I've certainly enjoyed this conversation. I hope you'll keep doing what you're doing. You know, I've read <laughs> your stuff online. It's 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 great. You're doing you're doing a good service for people.
1: Yeah, my thing is, I obviously love the Eagles. Can I break down like a cover two defense? Yes, but is that what I'm good at? Is that what this fire in me, this bipolar disorder in me has given me is a kind of a penchant for understanding people on a true emotional level. And I think I kind of re- relate that in my writing in a way that the Eagles, everyone watches the game, everyone knows who Zach Ertz is and loves watching him, you know, juke out Harrison Smith and catch a t- catch a pass in the NFC Championship game, all these different things. But... The Eagles for me are about my dad and my best friends, and my girlfriend. I think, you know, that can be seen the same for you where the Eagles to you are your father and your grandfather and your uncle, my brother. And these people. So I, yeah. your brother, and I feel like it's my, you know, almost a mission in a way for people to get people to dig down deeper in them with their Eagles fandom and celebrate it in a way and bring them closer to their loved ones. Like, you know, that, cause that's what it does to me. And I kind of want to instill that feeling to other people.
2: Yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, probably you know, Philly's such a great sports town and people know their sports, but I would say probably even the majority of Eagles fans, you know, I mean, you, you talk about everybody who watches the Eagles, and I'm talking about, you know, my 95-year-old grandmother before she passed. Yeah. She couldn't tell you anything about the defense or, you know, who was on the team besides the quarterback, but you know, she would knit me an Eagles hat and she was an Eagles fan. You know, so most people don't even know even the rules of the game, but, you know, there's something... That's what makes it so magical. special. Yeah, yeah. You know, my grandmother could not tell you probably the difference between an offensive or a defensive play, but, you know, she was a fan. And, you know, she was she was there on Sundays and, you know, she was there to talk about it. That's the power.
1: We finally found a good note to end on.
2: Yeah, that, that was a happy note. I love yeah. grandmother.
1: <laughs> That's the perfect example of when I say, like, because people talk about the Sixers, because obviously the Sixers were terrible for a while and then they got good in the last couple of years. And they'd be like, well, you know, if you didn't follow the team when they suck, you can't follow the team now. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm someone who watched them, you know, 95% of the games in the season, they, they won nine games and lost 70 something games. You know, what I love about the Eagles is that, you know, there's this little old lady that knows literally nothing about the game, but wants them to win because it's this communal thing. And it'd be great if the Sixers got there one day. So, you know, I think that's, you know, the perfect example of it means it means different things to other to any person in the city, but it's something that it's this connective tissue for everyone.
2: Yeah, my grandmother wanted the Eagles to win because she wanted her family to be happy. I think exactly. that's as simple as it gets.
1: All right, Matthew, your last novel was The Reason You're Alive, correct? I'm not really yeah, right.
2: yeah. Yeah. The reason you're alive.
1: Anything in the pipeline that you're working on that you can talk about?
2: Well, I have a lot of we have a um my novel, Sort of Like a Rockstar, has been made into a movie that will be out on Netflix. I think they're changing the title, though, unfortunately. So you'll have to, to look for that. It's coming out in, I think, either late July or August. So, you know, people can check out that and hopefully check out the movie before you, or excuse me, check out the book before you watch the movie. It's sort of like a rockstar. And um, all of my books are in various stages of development out in Hollywood. So hopefully we'll be getting a few more movies together. And I'm working on a novel too, but that's not in the stage where I can talk about it yet. So hopefully soon. Sure. Yeah.
1: I have not read that book, so I will get on that before the Netflix drop. Hopefully I appreciate I also- that. Yeah. If, people are, if people are still stuck inside, they'll be a very easily able to watch it at least.
2: That's right. I mean, I think Netflix is killing it right now. You know? The-
1: oh my God. Subscribers to every streaming service, Disney plus. Yeah. It's a win know, for them. So. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well,
2: this was great, Seamus. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
1: Matthew, this was a great conversation. Uh, definitely my favorite podcast I've done so far. So thank you so wow. much for your time. Obviously, if you guys, I'm sure all of you have seen the movie, Silver Linings Playbook. If you haven't read the novel, you're doing a disservice to yourself as an Eagles fan. You know, I haven't read a ton of you know phenomenal Eagles books in my life. You see all those kind of like a hundred things you should know before as an Eagles fan before you die. If there's one thing you should read before you die as an Eagles fan, as it relates to the Eagles as a work, I would recommend this novel.
2: I feel like I need to quote that and put that on the on the cover. It was a, it was a great great endorsement. Thank you.
1: Yeah, put it on the you know the 20th anniversary cover or whatever.
2: I put it on my tombstone.
1: Oh, oh yeah, I like that. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not. Hopefully. Not any time soon.
2: Yeah, in the future. Long, a long time from now. That no, was great. Thank you. Thank okay. you for,
1: for all of that. Thank you, Matthew. So I'm going to sign off. Once again, thank you to Matthew for coming on. Seamus Clancy, the From the Bleachers podcast on the fantastic Bleeding Green Nation Radio podcast network. Go birds. Thanks for listening.